You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Andy Ortman. Hello. Hi, Andy. <laughs> Hi, Gray. I, I'd say a long time no see, but I, I think I've seen you more recently than the Connollys have. Wow. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> uh-huh. I think it's true. Definitely. We were trying to even remember the last time, and it has been such a long time. Gray, when did you see Andy? We ran into each other at the Current 93 show in London oh, uh, five years ago now. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, randomly... liked when you, I liked when you saw me and you're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. You're like, oh, I just, I just taken a vacay and wouldn't you after he was playing? <laughs> I was just out looking for a kebab. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun show. That was a really good time. Sad they didn't make it over to the States for uh, any of the planned shows. Mm-hmm. One of these days. We all tried. I think but I saw you guys when you guys played Club Rectum last. That's probably yes! correct. That is definitely correct. I'm not sure what year that was, though. It, to the, in the early 2010s or maybe 2015, maybe right in the middle. So it's definitely been a while. But we all go back a long way. And I was saying to Tara and Gray this morning that one of the very first noise CDs I ever bought blind was the last compulsory exercise CD. And I bought it. It was when I was first getting into noise. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, so it was either at a record store in Chicago or the record store in Lexington that was owned by a former Chicago resident who was like a dual owner of, well, I want to say Dr. Wax. Is, was that the, a record store? Yeah, for sure. So I got it at one of those stores and I bought it specifically because it was in the noise section. I was just getting into noise. So mm-hmm. I was anything I was, I wanted, I loved the name and I mm-hmm. loved that it was packaged in the metal sheets and so just going back down memory lane, thinking about that, thinking about how excited I was and revisiting it yeah, this week has just been a real, a real joy. And so let's just get started with back then. Now, that was the second Panicsville album or yeah, is it the it first? A, I can't well, remember. The, technically, the first thing was an anti-record, but it was a second CD. Actually, we had that one distributed through Best Buy also. No, what? how did that happen? <laughs> Me and my friend Drew, who was also in Laudio Balaco, Psychic Paramount, he was also in Panicsville through on the first several records. But we were in Best Buy. We just thought it would be funny. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if our Panicsville CD was in here? We walked to the counter. We said, how do you do that? Guy gave us a uh, form to fill out, a bunch of questions, like name other bands your band sounds like, this and that. And we basically sent it in with a copy and they said, we'll take 200. (gasps) That is incredible. Do you recall who you listed that Panicsville sounded like? I'm, oh yeah, probably the obvious like White House nurse with wound, throbbing gristle. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But I didn't know if you were going to go with Phil Collins or, or just yeah. make it up just to ensure that uh, they take oh, it. Well, that would, yeah, they were going to listen to it anyway. So it obviously oh, okay, wouldn't, okay. wouldn't sound like the, you know, Phil <laughs> Collins. So I didn't uh, want to come well, off as like being a joke, even though the, mm-hmm. the joke itself was getting them into Best Buy. That is so fantastic. Awesome. So Panicsville started in 92. Is that correct? Yeah. 
And this is in, you were in St. Louis or at that yeah. time? Yeah, St. Louis. So let's go back to those early days. Give us the circumstances to which Panicsville was born. After I found out about experimental noise music, it it was like the punk I was looking for, but never really found. And I said, okay, this is it. This is inspiring me to the point where this is what I would like to be making in some capacity. So really not having many resources. Where does one start? We got a tape deck. We got some crappy effects pedals, some crappy keyboards, this and that. Four track, learning how to use a four track, basically learning a bunch of stuff that I was unaware of and didn't really have any peers to lean on at the time either, considering back then in St. Louis, no one was really doing noise per se. You had like strangulated beat offs, screaming memes, things like that, but that still isn't even noise. They're still like more like experimental rock bands. Yeah, I don't know, it's this flashlight in the dark kind of thing, just buying records I liked and being inspired by those things. And how did you first discover noise in general? Was it through radio or was it through magazines? Actually, it was a CD compilation in 91. I think Shock Records in England put out a compilation called the Portable Altamont. Classic. Yeah. And basically it was like, first of all, that time period, $25, a lot of money for a CD. But the only reason I bought it was for one song, which was a hype sticker on the outside said one unreleased track by each band. And the band I was interested in was Drunks With Guns. I had never even heard the other bands. I was just buying it for one Drunks With Guns song. It turns out the other four bands all blew my mind, which would be Skullflower, Current 93, Nurse With Wound, and uh, Coil. So yeah, bit of an eye opener there. And because you start seeing those band names in the racks, the racks was like, oh, here's a Coil record, buy this. Here's a Nurse of Wound record, buy this. They thank you lists. Like they thank this band, that band. And uh, magazines, if you could find them, but not many magazines back then were covering this stuff, at least not readily available in St. Louis. Banana Fish would be a, an exception to that. But that's pretty much how I stumbled into noise. That makes total sense that those are some of the very first projects that got you into it. I guess one other thing was this guy I randomly met in 89 or 90 gave me a record. He's like, oh, I think you're going to like this for some reason. It was, I dropped the needle and it was just glass breaking. And I said, this is amazing. It's like a clear vinyl record. And it turns out it was a P children on a triple R. Great record. Yeah. Yeah. So that, <laughs> some guy gave me that. And I guess that also helped things along. Find out about Triple R. It had the Triple R catalog in it. And I said, what's this? That kind of also opened up the floodgates. I like that compliment. Like, I think you would enjoy this record. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. He, he, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> Portable Ultimate is a record that makes a lot of sense as what got you into this stuff. Because I see a lot of influence from the bands on that roster. Like mm -hmm. when looking at that stuff, when I think of Panicsville, I, I definitely think of the surrealism of Nurse with Wound and the strange industrial experimentation of Coil, like as a core part of your approach, mm -hmm. and which is, of course has branched out much since then. But like Connolly was saying, he was listening to your second CD. I went back through my uh, memory here and I had 
picked up from you at some point evil with a question yeah. mark and i cannot pronounce it but it was the first cd can you i've never actually heard that title said blocks knocks annihilification that one i was trying to figure this out while talking to connelly earlier and i'm like yeah it's it came in this like spiky lenticular cover yeah. thing mm -hmm. and yeah so all of the cds we're talking about here 96 97 98 these were all hand assembled you got blank or like you got bulk discs from somewhere and you assembled all this packaging yourself right yeah the cds yeah were uh you know just got the cds shrink wrapped sent to me but the packing the packaging for instance the first one uh it's like drop ceiling plexiglass like diffusion for like overhead lighting but we were getting four by eight sheets of that and one of the guys had access to a laser water cutter Oh. And uh, so those are all made separately, handmade, each just separate ring snugly fit inside the other and all the discs. It was labor intensive for sure. <laughs> As is everything. The first anti-record was like a edition of a hundred. We smashed up a hundred or th hundreds and hundreds of records to glue a hundred together. That obviously took a long time. And then the second one, last compulsory exercise, those steel plates, I hand engraved I don't know if you know this, in the inside of the back panel, they're all hand numbered. So I sat there and hand numbered 232 slash 500, 233 slash 500. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. in, a stain, in a steel, which <laughs> is not fun. That took six months just to engrave all those. Wow. So what special packaging had you seen when you started doing these? Was it, did you get some anti-records from Triple R? Or what was the impetus to that you knew you wanted to do special packaging? As far, I don't think I actually saw any anti-records before this. Maybe the only th closest thing was the uh, Christian Marclay silent one. If you consider that to be an anti-record. But I didn't see the actual anti-records till years later from Ron. Things he like, or even new blockaders or things like that. But as far as the packaging, maybe the, maybe a chop shop, some stuff. But really, you just, you had this idea that you wanted to do handmade. Yeah, I was in art school for a bunch of years before this. <laughs> gotcha. And like the last two, I was doing sculptures made out of plexiglass for years. Initially with like encasing dead animals and then later making crazy uh, terrariums, interlocking terrariums with different breeds of animals, different types of animals. Uh, just, so I was already working with plexiglass for years. And then in school, yeah, I'd, I'd done stone, wood, poured metal. So I was already working with a bunch of materials. So the last two years of school, I didn't really want to be in school. I just wanted to run a label. So the first thing I did was release that pound of flesh 7-inch, which was also handmade plexiglass boxes for those 7 inches. So I had a vision of what I wanted to do from the get-go. And when we talked with Eric Hoffman a bit ago and talked about the pinch low special packaging, one thing we asked says edition of a hundred, how many were made? And he said, as advertised, buddy, 100. And he made them all same yeah. with Panicsville and nihilist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That pound of flesh seven inch was, I think 300 each Panicsville CD was 500. Yeah, 500, whatever they look like, the evil, those are in the shellacked wood. Those are the easiest probably to make, but mm -hmm. yeah, the total, I, yeah, absolutely did those numbers. 
I'm just picturing how cut up your fingers were for so many years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only thinking finger blood, especially the breaking of the LPs. Oh, yeah. Wow. That that was really a lot of fun. (laughs) Had six people in there smashing them over your knees or throwing them up in the air and like hitting them with hammers and stuff. (laughs) That was a good day. Amazing. I know people have record (laughs) stuffing parties, but a record smashing party is a sounds more Mm -hmm. enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah. More nihilistic. (laughs) Were you doing shows before the CDs were coming out in 92, 93, or was it mostly recording? Yeah. My first band, Pound of Flesh, we had been doing shows for years already since 92. Yeah, early Panixel shows were pretty performative. Those started as early as 92, 93. Yeah, so I think we probably had some kind of reputation before any of the records came out. That's awesome. And were people starting to come through St. Louis or were you making contact with people, bringing people, going outside of St. Louis? What were some of those early years like for you as far as contacts and who you guys played with and who you end up meeting? Yeah. Early shows would have been a handful of places that would book bands. I guess I wouldn't, wasn't trying to play shows, but if a weird band came through, we would get asked. I don't know, like, I think we would play with Harry Pussy, Royal Trucks, Carolina Rainbow. I don't know, whatever was considered to be like a weird band, we would fit that Mm -hmm. bill. I booked some, like the Carolina Rainbow show. I booked Dustin from A-Pop. He was booking shows, but I feel as he, if he, maybe he's the one that booked that Haters, Skin Crime, Zipper Spy, Emo Bolio tour. Wow. Crank, Crank Sturgeon also was on yep. that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. which documented in the Huck Finn VHS, one of the classic mm-hmm. noise tours and VHS. Wow. And you guys played that show? No, actually, I didn't play that show, but I was oh. a, one of the seven people in attendance. Hey, that's <laughs> it's so beautiful. I'm sure more than seven people have said that they were there at this point, but you yeah. definitely were there. <laughs> but, that, but that makes sense too. And, and I think of Panicsville at a coming from a time in a place like that tour where the thing we always talk about when the lines weren't drawn so much, the boxes weren't filled in so much, you could have skin crime and crank sturgeon and haters and zippers by all on the same show where it was the, the world of noise was still very open oh, yeah. where you could harsh to strange to the dark humor, mm-hmm. which is absolutely what I see all filtered in into Panicsville has always been all those elements. And I imagine it's not, wasn't a conscious thing. It was just, it's just you. I've just knowing you did, that just seems like it's, it really is an extension of just your personality. I would think so. I'm going to have to agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> just the, there's the humor, but then also the seriousness and all mixed together. And that's, yeah. and out comes Panicsville. And I always do associate because that the CD being my first Panicsville CD and one of my first noise CDs, I always associate you with uh, outer limits or just because that first track oh, yeah. and, and even the CD face, there's yeah. something very outer limits about Panicsville to me. Was that something you were into back then? Oh, for sure. I think, yeah, I think me and you even bonded over that show back then. I'm sure we did. I, cause that way we, I uh, love that yeah. show so much. Definitely. Yeah, I still think it was one of my favorite TV shows ever. Like, it was really boundary pushing for what it was at the time. And yeah, they're still great. Things like the costumes and stuff. Like I guess anything with like weird monster costumes, I was influenced by whether it's Godzilla, Dr. Who, Ultraman, outer limits, 
whatever it is. Yeah, we've recently gotten into Ultraman. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, yeah this is yeah. so great. One thing that stood out about seeing Panicsville way back when, over 20 years ago for me, was the costumes, of course. was a, You mentioned Pound of Flesh being very performative. When did the visual presentation, the costumes come into things, and how are those assembled and decided upon? Because it's a pretty diverse array of looks you've had over the years. Um, gosh, when do they start? I guess that started in Chicago. I wasn't exactly building costumes yet when I was in St. Louis, uh, just building the packaging. And I feel like the more I thought about it, the presentation of the live thing was an extension of this DIY packaging and then like DIY packaging of how the band looked. Uh, and I'd been sewing since I think 96 when I put out that Madonna tribute, I had to teach myself how to sew. Moving forward with that, I was just experimenting with different kinds of uh, fabrics and for other types of packaging. And then it, like I said, why not make costumes? And yeah, I just started sketching out different ideas, different types of materials and make a design and go with it, really. Yeah, the they're all very strange. Even looking at photos of them now, the sort of the leather octopus mm -hmm. <laughs> look and yeah. alongside of something from like Sid and Marty Croft, there's all these strange elements mashed into it. How were the costumes received? I know that like, at least in the early two thousands, there was maybe a bit of backlash or at least amongst people I knew against costume noise, thinking mm. that the quality of the noise took a backseat to the costumes, which I don't think is the case in, Panicsville, in yeah. regards to Panicsville, of course, the costumes were definitely an extension of the weirdness and all the influences that were put into the noise. Right. But I, I wonder if you ever caught anything because of that or ever noticed any kind of sentiment either mm. way about it. No, I wouldn't say backlash. We did try to keep things in a playable fashion where it wasn't going to be over complex where the costumes are going to get in the way. But uh, I thought it was always well received. We got... I guess it was a solo show, but I got flown out to play a Fax Ted reunion show in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that was with brand posts and destroy ape technology, which was a very costumey performative uh, SRL side project. So yeah, we, know, we know Chip, he's great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then Fax Ted. So it's like, if it's San Francisco, Oakland, very well received, but I have never really heard someone complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> that octopus is forever burned into my memory because you played the sh a show in Kentucky. I think it was Charles Mansion. Or no, it was the Club Seal. Or Club Seal. Uh, I want to say it's Club One Seal. One of the yeah. two. Yeah. Anyway. I Irene Moon's house slash yeah. venue. And yeah. that is where your eye was burst open on the fireplace and you're yeah. dressed as this octopus and you did not stop. I, I think you duct taped it shut eventually because there was blood just pouring everywhere. Yeah. Irene duct taped it. Yeah. She actually was uh, insisting I go to the hospital, but if you remember, it's like a packed house party on like a Friday night. Yeah. I'm like, nah, man, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm like, just like, she's like I got some duct tape. I'm like, let's do that. And yeah. I can't even see that I have a scar from that. It was, but it was, I will never forget it because again, the octopus 
the mm-hmm. pouring of blood, the refusal to stop playing. Yeah, forever burned into my memory. The floor was blood splattered. It was quite a night. And you did stay. And we hung out for the entire night. And it was a spectacular cut over your eye. And your eyes started swelling. It was great. It was a wonderful yeah. time. Absolute noise show. Yeah, I, I didn't even know I was bleeding, honestly. Because I was just thrashing around. And uh, I, did, I thought, I'm like, wow, I'm really sweating a lot. And then when I went to wipe it away, I'm like, oh, shit. Unless I'm sweating blood. But yeah, that was a good night. Whoops. That wasn't that. That was when Hair Police was like a four piece, right? Yeah, yeah probably was yeah. when Minner was in the van. That was like still, early, most likely, early, yeah. early on show for you guys. Yep. Yeah, I'm yep, sure. Definitely. I'm sure Irene had to do a lot of mopping after that whole show. Well, yeah, it was for multiple you know, reasons. It was worth it. <laughs> you must yeah, have been no, used to yeah, sweating definitely. in the leather outfit that you would wear all the time that must have just been a constant feeling while performing yeah really like the time yeah it, uh, yeah it didn't breathe so well so <laughs> I, if i was on tour night after night I'm like the mask would get funky <laughs> yeah if I, I was gonna work on make new costumes uh but they they got to be breathable hell yeah you know what i, I think what Gray was getting at too, just that idea of like, I just recall you and I being able, we could sit and talk about White House and Carolina in the same breath. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't, it would, there was no like, again, that time where the, to me, there wasn't, it was just all this world and mm-hmm. all these different little pockets where as the years go on, things start getting a little more boxed off or People I like this or I like this. Pocket. But I, yeah. I never, I always think of you as someone who is into all of it. Yeah, I feel like my tastes keep expanding. Always looking for new genres. Constantly download gigs and gigs stuff all the time. Yeah, I it never it never ends. Well, much like the Connellys, I I have a, a good set of fond memories of hanging out with you and talking music, and also just like being at your place and listening to records and you playing some shit I've never heard. For sure. And something I've always tried to do when I've had house guests or people staying with me on tour or whatever is play some records they've, they've never heard or play something. I think they'll really dig that they might not know. It's, it gives me a, a sense of joy doing that sort of thing. And I think they're probably the same for you since you do a radio show, you yeah. always playing records for people, always doing this sort of stuff. And like you said, your case keep expanding, but you've been at this. Panicsville's been around for 30 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's impressive to say, yeah, my taste keep expanding when <laughs> it's you'd think you might have soaked everything in by now, but there's always something new to, to listen to and to hear and to find out about, right? Oh, absolutely. I try to make them all the records sound different. I know the new record's gonna sound pretty different. Just because I have a bunch of guest people on it, so the sum of its parts is always going to be something more than just one or two people's ideas. I really enjoyed Psychoacoustic Electronics. I've listened to that one a few times. Actually, I, I purchased, you You reissued a record that I have on CD and I love, which is Revenge of the Selfish Shellfish, mm-hmm. which is uh, Stephen Stapleton and Tony Wakeford's collab record from the 90s. And it's, you sent along a download code for Psycho Elec- Psychoacoustic Electronics and I immediately listened to it and was like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is a cool. logical continuation of Panicsville more in mm-hmm. a psychedelic music concrete mm-hmm. sort of way than what I'm used to hearing from Panicsville, although that element's always been there too, of course. Uh, it's an interesting progression. And now there's a new Panicsville record also that you're working on? That's been in the works for years now. Even when I saw you in London, like Diana Rogerson does tra- uh, vocals on a track and like that track was finished back then, but it's like 
slowly being worked on. Okay. <laughs> and That's, what was the last okay. Panicsville full length? Gosh, gosh, I'm even blanking on it. Wow, I don't even know the name of it. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look it up. It's, 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 it's some, something underground. I'm like, great, you've got it. Look it up. <laughs> oh, oh, no, actually, no, I think it's elect electroacoustic underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. that you nailed it. Hey, you know what? Yeah, you won the quiz. You got the name of your last record. Congratulations. Great. <laughs> How long was that in the works for? Oh, we pretty much recorded that over one weekend when Jeremy flew out. We just sat in the living room, set up all the modulars, and yeah, we have a good psychic understanding of what we're doing. We didn't have to talk very much, and so many beautiful parts came out of it. I remember the one track, it's the end of side one, that has Mike Doskasil from Drunks with Guns doing vocals on it. That one originally, while we were recording, it was just a basically a drum beat, a rhythm track. And I just liked, it was like a loop. I said, I like what's happening here. If no one can touch anything, that'd be great. So we let that run for 10 minutes because I sort of was like getting a vision of, oh, I'll do some overdubbing later. So yeah, it's worth a listen. I had Weasel Walter playing guitar in that. Once it was coming together in my mind, I said, wow, it sounds like a Drunks with Guns song or it'd be amazing to have him sing on it. So I, I contacted him and I sent him the track and he was already fond of Weasel. And I told him he's doing guitars on it already. And yeah, he agreed to do vocals on it. And it turned out to be like more like butthole surfers or something, but. Never a bad comparison. It's funny, again, <laughs> talking about getting into this, buying Portable Altamont for a Drunks with Guns track and later having a member of Drunks with Guns on your record is mm -hmm. a, a great through line for how we can all connect through this sort of thing that we do right now. We've stayed connected for years because of it. Uh, yeah, for sure. To running into each other randomly in London, not really randomly, I guess should have expected you there, but <laughs> 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 not everybody makes the trek, right? You mentioned Jeremy, Jeremy Fisher, Jeremiah Fisher, as he's listed and the releases. Mm-hmm. He seems to be one of your one of the most consistent members of Panicsville since he started playing with Panicsville. But let's go back and you were there was there's always been other people surrounding Panicsville in your world. Mm -hmm. Is it a is it a open invite for certain people? Do you have certain people that you have in mind when you're thinking about recording? How do you decide who's gonna be on a, a Panicsville release or in Panicsville for a live show? In the early days, it would depend on, the earliest incarnation was two other guys, David Forker and Ryan Kaler. And we played one or two shows with that lineup. And years had gone by, lineups change, people move away. Whoever I was living with at the time, they would, and then they have obviously have to show an interest in it. I guess it was like people like, hey, I'd really be down to do this. I'm like, okay. and practice around if we gelled they would stick around for a while or until i moved yeah it did, it did solidify more in like the 2000 uh, yeah when i met jeremy he moved here from st louis and one thing led to another and he was in the band and uh, yeah but because he stuck around for so long and he was easy to work with uh but even though he's out in colorado now i don't know we haven't recorded so much lately but it's more like an annual thing when he'd fly out when did you move to Chicago? 
August of 99. Gotcha. And you had no contact with Jeremy when he was in St. Louis? It was, it was just coincidence that he was from there? Not or did exactly. You? He had sent me a war crimes tribunal CDR. And he, yeah, he wrote to me and reached out, but we didn't still communicate very much until I think he moved here. That's so awesome. did you know, Mike, did you know Andy prior to me? I guess we would have probably met in 2000 or 2001, maybe the first when Hair Police played at the hideout. I want to say you were there and that would have been around yeah. 2001. That mm -hmm. was when we, yeah, it would have been 2001. Yeah, because no, so, I know you knew Jeremy in the 90s. Oh, oh. No, I knew, I obviously knew Jeremy before you, but right before you it would have been around the same yeah. time yeah so yeah i think we met in around 2001 which was the first out of town shows that we were playing and then i i don't and then we just started playing shows together i don't remember if it was lexington or chicago that we first played shows together but yeah yeah and then you would go on to play our wedding show of course mm -hmm. so yeah it was just like i said there was something I just remember how much fun we would have staying at your place. Again, like Grace, yeah. just listening to records, just sharing a bunch of the same interests, but then also you showing us stuff. Like I remember your White House collection was just fantastic back then. And I was, I still never got over it still to this day, drool over anyone's <laughs> White House collection. Every time we were near you, we would come away with being familiar with a new movie or a new project or even some new, you know, genre that we hadn't even checked out. Yeah. Sharing so is that caring. Was that's what was so it absolutely is and then around that time is with jeremy you guys definitely were doing more touring back then and yeah. and is that still something that you are wanting to do or is it more one-offs what's your relationship with live shows and touring these days yeah um not super interested in playing live right now i do even though i did play at the empty bottle last week that was like my only real chicago show all year but I, I just have a backlog of recordings I have to make or finish. or And to me, that's all a lot more important than playing live right now. Tearing apart a studio to play shows is always a nightmare for me these days, I find. Yep. Total drag. Not really worth it. <laughs> I think of you as someone with a lot of equipment as well. Like uh, your, your synth guy is, mm -hmm. I've always remembered your MS-20 with the delay pedal built into mm -hmm. the top of it and yeah i uh, just weird equipment you would have on stage when did you start getting into gear i know you talked about not having really much in the way of means when you started out so mm -hmm. what transpired to lead to that interest in since and what were you using on those early cds like when i listened to evil i listened to it again earlier today mm -hmm. I, it's such a strange mix of noise stuff weird the only way i could really phrase it is like surrealist plunderphonic mm -hmm. elements sound collage and there's also some strange spoken computer <laughs> vocals on there and mm -hmm. some samples so how was that stuff put together in the late 90s that one evil in particular was a lot of material from Ladio blocco so we were working on the record back and forth there in new york a lot of their source material, they weave into it. We'd send stuff back and forth, cut stuff up, manipulate it. By in 96, uh, in a pawn shop in Texas, I found a pair of those blind person tape deck, those yellow tape decks. I had a pair of those since 96, so I was doing a lot of tape manipulation since then. 
the computer voice, one of my friends, they had a project brain transplant. I think one of the guys had some kind of speech synthesis thing he did for that. So again, it's whoever is working on it, it's always like some of its parts. I feel like, who, yeah, whoever I'm working with, it's going to have a, that kind of a feel mixed with whatever I'm doing. And again, the, the interest in synths are like picking up more gear, that kind of stuff. When did that start? In the beginning, just not having much looking for it. See, I bought the Memory Man off a guy in 90 for $15. And then I just started collecting more stuff. Pawn shops. I find a pitch shifter here and a reverb there. Go to used music stores. That's how I found that MS-20. There is a place down the street from my first apartment. I got that for $80. I, I walked in and I said, and the guy's like, what are you looking for? I'm like, I don't know, something I can like patch cables into. He's like, oh, I think I got something in the back. He's like, oh, it was under a pile of junk. <laughs> I got it for $80. But he also had a bunch of stuff I wish I would have grabbed at the time. Like looking back, he had a ton of Overheims and Farfizas. And I don't know where this guy was getting it, but it was very cheap. <laughs> It was also that it was that dip in time where synths were not wanted. It was mm -hmm. there. There were it. There was that couple year window where you hear stories like that, getting that for eighty bucks, getting moogs for thirty bucks yard at a church sales. yard sale because yeah. it was before synths started making coming back. It was considered old eighties. Who wants that rock, rock bands or the mm -hmm. or what? That's what's everyone wants, but. A lot of people took great advantage in those in that mid to late 90s where it was just that pocket where those things seemed worthless to someone who would run a, a, a used instrument store. Yeah, some studios were just tossing out rack gear. And like in the trash. <laughs> it's so mm -hmm. crazy to think about. You seem to have and maybe this is something you've always been interested, but at least in the titles and the presentation of current records a lot that are just under your own name mm -hmm. seem to have really gotten into different ideas the psychoacoustic ideas evp mm -hmm. more psychological influence is this something that's always been there something that you got more into in maybe later years and talk about your interest in that in those topics i feel like the interest has been there but bringing it more to the forefront has been more of a newish thing. Michael Esposito. I, so he, I, the name, when you said that the name was familiar and I read it and I know he provided some EVP recordings, but mm -hmm. remind me or tell us who Michael Esposito is. He lives in Chicagoland. He is a, I don't know if professional is the right word, but he's a expert with the uh, evp ghost recordings he travels the world doing it he's on the label touch yes label. yeah yeah yes, yeah yeah yes yeah so i think he falls into a weird niche he's also going to be on this new panic so album also he gave me a bunch of evp recordings for that yeah psychoacoustics i guess i've been thinking about that more the last several years things about spatialization the phenomenology of sound, which something like the Halfwood Trio has always got me going for like the last 30 years. Standing waves. Things of this nature. How do you incorporate that into an album and where? what sort of 
space do you set up when you're recording and when you're thinking about that, putting that into a recording? One module I have this Quasar. It's a spatialization module. It allows you to like pan up and down, back and forth for like front to back Doppler capabilities for movement that mixed with, I guess, different kind of sound sources and some of these, yeah, they're experiments. Not, it's not like dictating fact in these recordings, but I feel like it's applying these concepts. And do you record a, a big chunk live and go back and edit it? How, what is the actual process? Is it, are you in a studio with killer speakers that are giving you these effects? What is the actual process of recording something like that? Yeah. Like I said, I could do some stuff through this module or later on a computer. It's easier to do these things in post versus like a lot of that equipment doesn't really exist in hardware per se. Not that I have anyway. So I'm using like, yeah, computers for addressing those aspects. How long does it take for you to work on something to get that, that when you're trying to achieve some sort of effect like that, like you're talking about the spatialization, hmm. is it a meticulous session that you're working on? Is it intuitive? What is the, what is the, your process when you're actually making say just a track? Depending on the track within a track, I could have 30 different parts. So I'm just recording small little sections and then I determine which sections, if they can go together, do they fit together? Should a thing exist on its own? And then I look at them as little scenarios. Like, a, yeah, so the scene's going to segue to this other scene. And these scenes allow me to experiment with these different strategies and techniques. So it's not like the whole thing is singular or uniform. They're very all over the place, especially on the new one, the new triple LP. It's lots of, I don't want to say chopped up, but there's definitely delineations in within the pieces themselves. That makes sense. And you're speaking of the solo record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Cause that one is just, it just really going over your entire history in a short time span gearing up. And thinking about this, there there is stuff that's totally you can hear in those early re recordings up to now. You can absolutely hear the through line, and there is something about not being able to get settled when you put on a Panicsville or an Andy Orton release. You think you you get it, you might get an illusion that you might be able to settle. You in, get fooled by a little music concrete. All of a sudden, <laughs> you're you get thrown into another area that you didn't yeah. expect and then thrown around that obviously is something you enjoy doing expect the unexpected yeah, of course <laughs> Ab yeah absolutely right yeah one time when i was briefly in new jersey i got an email from a girl she was telling me when she was 15 or 16 the first someone i guess she was tripping on acid for the first time and she was underneath a stairwell and someone was playing her the evil cd <laughs> And she just wanted to thank me for making <laughs> that kind of music, I suppose. It's a nice letter to get. <laughs> I can't imagine how that would feel. Oh, man. <laughs> for the first time, I don't know. That one, too, 
I was surprised listening to it again because I was so familiar with it back then. It was again an early. I, I was trying to think when we met, and I I really think it must have been at that extreme music from women fest that Susan Lolly had put on. So it would have been it's at the Gold Dollar. At the Gold Dollar, yeah. Wow. R- <laughs> rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. This is the Gold Dollar. Well, I would be missing it anyway because it's in Detroit and I don't live there anymore. But yeah, a strange little dive bar venue that would have some pretty killer noise shows. But I think that was, I think that was the first time that we interacted. That could have very well been. And I'm pretty sure I bought those CDs off you then because mm-hmm. you had a merch table and they looked crazy so it would have been something i was very familiar with in what 2000 just listening to this stuff and and not having quite the library of experimental stuff that i do now so you really focus on those things and especially Mm -hmm. just meeting someone and getting to hear this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff listening back to it i was amazed it you have some preconceived notion of how an album you've heard a bunch will sit when you haven't heard it in a while and Mm -hmm. it it did just keep changing on me like every track I actually was over at Connolly's today. I pulled up listening to the Ballad of Danny Rowling. Oh, wow. Dark one. <laughs> right. As I'm getting out the car windows down, trying to parallel park on a busy street. Yikes. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the jumping around of all of that and going from all of these different pieces of electronic pieces of stuff you're using drum machines back then there's mm-hmm. some melodic synth composition on there on that one too <laughs> so everything was fair game back then and still today it seems like there was never any limitations put on the sounds that you make and incorporate yeah as long as they felt tasteful to me and any sound yeah basically one of the things you mentioned in an interest in these sorts of spatial sounds is Halfler Trio. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that you also work with Nihilist in putting out their releases, right? Yes. How did that relationship come about? I was going to the airport from New Orleans. I was in the car and looking at my phone, I saw Franz DeWard make a post about how he no longer has a label and an album was needing a home. And it was this album with halfway tree and Bruce Gilbert. And I basically emailed Franz. I said, Hey, I'm about to get on a plane, but can you like send me these files or I'd like to be a part of this or something. But I don't know. I thought I was like going to get beat out by like vinyl on demand or Migo or something like this. So I was actually surprised how the thing even really happened in the first place. Do you have a favorite Halfler Trio record? Gosh, I don't know. Thirsty Fish, of course. Then there's that, of course, that great trilogy from the early 90s. Kill the King, Mastery of Money, How to Reform Mankind. Yeah. Which it looks like I'm going to be putting those out on vinyl now. Oh, excellent. Awesome. I, Fantastic. Maybe it's just me. The, the first one I heard has always stuck with me, which I believe was Dislocation. You know what? That was also the first one I heard. I also saw the packaging in the record store. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. Bought it and uh, I still love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. They were one of those bands, the gray area of mute did those CD reissues. And I felt like you could find those around mm-hmm. forever. And of course now I don't see them anymore <laughs> anywhere, but mm-hmm. such an important band for me, at least in the you know late nineties, early two thousands, it was like Solid Moon catalog stuff that, that, really spoke to me because it was on the weirder end of the stuff they carried. 
For sure, yeah. You have worked with a lot of great artists doing some reissues, some new issues. And again, seeing the through line of your work, your interest, everyone from Runzel Stern to Molest to Halfway Trio to Dissecting Table. Again, a lot of projects where the lines are blurry. You're not exactly sure what you're going to get in every release. So it mm -hmm. totally makes sense that these are some of the people that you work with. When did you end up getting in touch with Rudolph? Because I feel like that's something that definitely there's a connection in some ways to Panicsville and Shimflucked and, and what Rudolph and, and those guys were doing. Yeah, I think uh, Charles Banana Fish guy first told me about Rudolph and said I would like it and was trying to seek stuff out what I could. And eventually it did speak to me. And in 2001, I was trying to contact him. Uh, yeah, basically to negotiate something and I could not get a hold of him, but Dave Phillips wrote me back in his place. I don't know, fielding the questions or something. He's like, what do you want to talk to Rudolph about? <laughs> I'm like, I'd like for him to do a record for me. He's like, Oh, that's not possible. I'm like, why? And he said, he's living in the back of a broken down bus in the outskirts of rural Japan with no electricity. And I'm like, okay, do you want to do something? <laughs> and, then, and then Dave gave me some materials. And I think eventually uh, Rudolph did contact me and he's said he was living in place that electricity and then ended up making a record for me. <laughs> that is a, the, a perfect story for how that happened. <laughs> and then, yeah, you did that great molest. The North of Obscure Origin. Obviously, the three of us are massive fans of Molest's work. I met him in London. Steve Harbinger put a festival mm -hmm. on. It was, yeah, Molest, Panicsville, Sutcliffe Ugand, Romley, Consumer Electronics, Birds of Delay, Evil Moisture, Grunt. Wow. Bill Gallagher's his project, something snake. Family Battle Snake. Yes, that's oh, it. Yes. Family yes. Battle Snake. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, Al, I think talked about, Al talked about that show, if I'm not mistaken, when mm -hmm. we talked to him, but yeah. Wow. What a crazy lineup. Yeah. It was for smell and Quinn were supposed to be on it, but apparently they were going to do something that got him kicked off the bill. <laughs> but, I can't imagine. Yeah. Me too. But I was excited to meet Al molest. And when I saw him, cause I had a test pressing to give him, I said, man, I'm really uh, looking forward to your set tonight. And he's like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I brought a CD. I'm giving it to the DJ for my set. He's like, me and you are going to have a pint, and then I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he, I, if I'm not mistaken, he did talk about this when we talked to him. And yeah, yeah, he just rolled in for that and left. He wasn't there for any of the bands or anything. But I guess, yeah, wow. we were able to meet, and I was able to hand him off his test pressing, and that was it. Wonderful. <laughs> True noise style. Yes. Expect the unexpected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And something a little more recent to great recording was a soundtrack you did for a, a film that I was unfamiliar with. I wasn't, I didn't know, I had not heard of this film uh, and it was supposed to be screened with your soundtrack, but alas, the world did not allow it, but we can still hear the recording. Can you talk about that? Was uh, it soundtrack in that film? Chronopolis? Yeah, exactly. Again, mm -hmm. I wasn't I, I wanted you to say it because I'm the world's worst pronouncer, but right. yeah, I was I didn't know that 
the film, I, I'm totally unfamiliar with it. So can you give us the background of that and then how that came together? How it came together was, at least in Chicago, they would have these series put on by universities where they invite an artist and they choose a film, a movie to play, rescore it or some, however they interpret that. And University of Chicago approached me about doing something and I'm like, agreed to do it. And I chose, yeah, I chose this movie, Chronopolis. Piotr Kamler, he lived in French, not French born, maybe Belgian or Polish, but he did a lot of other animations. They're shorts. If you haven't seen them, they're all pretty amazing. Like some of them have uh, soundtracks by like Bernard Parmigiani. And Chronopolis uh, originally has a score by Luke Ferrari. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think Ferrari maybe did some others, these shorts as well. Yeah. I very much liked that animation. It was the longest one, the first full length he did. And I still cut it down by 20 or 30 minutes. And the Luke Ferrari one's cool, but like, I just felt like it was a little sloppy as far as the audio syncing up on a one to one ratio with what I was seeing. So in my mind, I'm like, ah, I think I'm going to try to do this for my uh, entry for this thing. And I spent 40 hours on it. After putting that much work into it, I said, I'm going to make it a release as well. And also that I feel like that was the very first thing I was aware of that got shut down by COVID. It was like Friday the 13th of that week there were things were happening. I was supposed to play perform for that. That's when the university had booked this live event, mm -hmm. but it got canceled. I did eventually about a couple years later, uh, show it once. It's an animated film. It is. It's like a stop. I believe it's like, yes, yeah, I'll stop animation. Very cool. And it's from 1982. Is that correct? I believe it came out in 82. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, I just, I'd never even, I had not even heard mm -hmm. of. Have you of seen it dick. yet? Or no, no, that's what I'm saying. Like I, oh, so wow. I, I like, yeah, I just, when, when did you come to it? I just, I'm just curious. I'm excited to check it out. Another new thing that you exactly. introduced us to. I'll send you a, a file so you can see it. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. I don't know. I've had a, the VHS, I don't know, for 15, 20 years or something. I acquired it from some guy's collection up north. But like, I'm like, wow, this looks cool. And it turned out to be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you just, you've done some film scoring in the past as well. A little bit, for yeah. For different experimental films. The, if I'm not mistaken, the CD Perverse, wasn't there, a, wasn't there something to do with the film score with that? Wasn't there like the- Yeah, um, there's a 32 millimeter short by Usama yeah. Al-Shabi. Yeah, that was, it looked great on 32 millimeter. Yeah, I guess there were some problems when that was supposed to get pressed originally that the owners of the company felt that it was too offensive and they refused to do the job. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because the girl putting it out called me crying one morning and said she was crying, saying they weren't going to be able they weren't, the company was refusing to make it. So I called them myself wow. and I was talking to the owners of this company. I'm like, why are you <laughs> refusing to make this? It's already been paid for. Like, oh, they can have their money back. I'm like, what's the problem? Like, this isn't fit for children. I'm like, this wasn't made for children. Yeah, clearly wasn't made for children. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, your children are not my audience. So I don't know what the issue is. Wow. Oh, wow. And how, and did it end up, did you end up convincing them? It, it was moved to a different company. 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Another company ended up pressing it. Man, just riling everyone up. I didn't make it. I just soundtracked it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow, look at that. And yeah, that is. And I'm the, like, now I want to see it. That is that we. Let's it, find out. We, I can try. I can try to send you that too if I can find it. I we definitely have it. Definitely, because that's it's like on the it's like a oh, it's yeah, like it's on all, the CD, right? Yeah, I think it's like track one on the disc. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, so if you have that hmm? enhanced CDs, I think they were called. Oh yeah, all the rage yeah, these the, days. The, the few yeah, enhanced CDs, the future <laughs> of media. Exactly. <laughs> Either first track is data or hidden hidden first track. You got to rewind it. it oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. dude, that's amazing. And but did you ever do that live, or did you just score it for the CD? Yeah, that was just yeah for that film. That was not really a live thing. No, I did. I recently did well, a couple of years ago. I did some soundtrack work. For a guy and i think that movie is on tubi now like t-u-b-i oh yeah oh there's so many crazy things on tubi i know yeah this guy <laughs> sent me a link to it so i was like wow i'm gonna watch uh, this movie that i did some sound stuff for what movie is that it's called blue fish this guy it's weird it's like kind of like a documentary like a diary this guy's traveling around the world He's got some sort of mental, or is it mental? I think it's like some kind of mental ailment or something, but he heard there's rumors that there's one specific fish somewhere in Norway was used to cure such a thing. So, yeah, he's going on its little journeys, interviewing different people about this thing. It sounds like it could be boring, and it's just a very strange movie. I think I just saw this advertised to me, actually, now that I'm looking at the cover. And yeah, I, maybe it's familiar. Yeah, he only uh, uses my music in the violent parts, like a, a guy getting r- mugged and uh, something else violent happens. So I'm like, oh, that's the only times he chose to use my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, important question: You still have your motorcycle? No, no, no. I had like five of them at one point, but different things kept happening to them: uh, impounded, stolen, <laughs> left behind. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I remember running into you and you said you didn't have a motorcycle license. For a while, <laughs> no. But my friend told me a horror story. And the next day I went out and got my license. I did the written and the driving. I got it all taken care of right away. Okay. Because he told me he some cops took his bike away or his keys away in the middle of nowhere. Like left him in a oh. parking lot of like a Walmart or something. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Wisdom. No, I miss riding. I miss riding a bike, though. How have you seen the seen Chicago change in the time that you've been there? As far as, for lack of a better term, the scene. And you, you said ninety nine. You're still there. You're mm-hmm. still involved with so many people. Have you seen big changes? Have you seen different eras? What is your take on Chicago for the past? over 20 years, 25 years that you've been there. Yeah, sure. Everything was different back then. When I first moved here, Twig and Carly were here. They had a sh- an oddities shop. Uh, Magus had a record store with Records the soap and, soap and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> things were so different back then. Things were affordable by today's standards or not by today's standards. But 
And then you, I guess you th- just think like what happened since then. There was like electro clash back then. But yeah, there is like costume noise. So just why, yeah, watching these things come and go. I think it's like the same way the genres would be anywhere, really. But there's always been a lot of flux here with venues. They would always come and go. I went to a new one, new to me, last week. I'd never been to another warehouse space, but things are always... Always changing. I used to care about going out more than I do. So I was a lot, I used to be a lot more sociable and go and see a lot more of these shows. But um, I don't know how much, what's the saying? The more things change, the more they stay the same. I think it's that. There's still a techno scene, there's still dance parties, there's still underground noise shows. Uh, I'm not sure what the, Maybe the way they've been advertised, I've seen, I think changes. There's right. flyers. Now everything is texting each other or digital flyer. Yep, exactly. Well, it feels too that Chicago always has, and I guess like many cities, every few years there's the central underground slash warehouse slash whatever you want to call it venue, loft venue, mm-hmm. the Mopery. Oh yeah. Club rectum. And then they can only, they have these bright moments where it Mm -hmm. just seems like this is the greatest. And then a a year or two later, someone moves or it gets shut shut down. down. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Exactly. It's always, it's always something. I was doing that loft at 23rd Michigan for six years or something. Yeah. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. Of course your place. Yeah. Yeah. So there, that was like, we do shows about three times a month, but all good things come to an end. Did you have a name for it? Just, I don't nihilist. just nihilist. Yeah, it was just nihilist. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. I remember is, seeing. Has shows there been there? a replacement for Club Rectum since it is no longer around? What do you mean by replacement? Like, has there been a new? Has there been like a new under warehouse loft type space? Yeah, in the there's past probably couple of years? there's probably more than I'm in aware even aware. Like like this one I went to on Halloween. It was a big warehouse loft part of town I'd never been to before. I guess they've been doing shows there a while though. Again, I'm not going out so much. Yeah. But uh, yeah, these places, I know they're happening. I'm seeing shows constantly being listed. So the scene, it's, I'm, it's as vibrant as it ever was. I'm just not really going to these local shows so much. Oh yeah. I mean, who can go to a show? It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's who en- has the time it, or the will. It's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, think it's, I, think, I think it's like my anxiety at this point. Oh yeah. dude. No, t- t- like, like, Totally, a hundred percent, and just mm-hmm. being around, you know, having conversations—it's very stressful. I, my anxiety is good in the moment, but then you get mm-hmm. home, and that's when the wheels really start spinning. I find. Gotcha. Who needs that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I just want to hang out with my cats and watch movies. Yeah. <laughs> watch any good movies lately? Oh God, I don't even know where to start. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything to recommend? Anything oh, Halloween that- themed? Have you seen the jar? The no. jar? Yeah. No. Strongly recommend it. It's a movie I would be playing for people for a while now. It's difficult to explain. I did see it at a theater last week and I was, I met the guy who stars in it and very interesting situation. It's got a lot of cool synth music and it doesn't really make sense. And it's like watching a fever dream. Have you ever seen things? 
Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Love things. Okay, you're going to love the jar. Okay, All there right. you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is this yeah. a modern f- movie? No, it's from like, okay. I think, 84 or something. Oh, Perfect. excellent. Yeah. I, I think it's like a deep cut. <sighs> I wish I had the time to like write all these movies down, but yeah, it's really, I've been overloading, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's yeah. great. I'm actually, I think I know where a VHS, this VHS is that I definitely got from you. I'm going to go grab it. Cause I know the label has everything that's on it. I'm going to go grab it. I'm going to grab it. Okay, and, okay. For, and for the extra segment, we're going to look at, we're going to look at what you provided me back in the early 2000s. So right, sweet. Hang tight. Andy, this is so much fun. This is so much fun Super. catching up. It has been oh, so yeah. long and it's just, it was just, it was like no time has passed. I felt and the same way. I'm so happy that we got to have you on, have this great conversation. Oh yeah. Where? Can the people keep up with you? Is Bandcamp the best way to, to find out what's coming out and to support and pick up either physical or digital copies of all the stuff? Is that your preferred method of people keeping up with you? A new website is now up as of this year, nihilistrecordings.com. Boom. But also the same for Bandcamp, nihilistrecordings.bandcamp. Either way is really fine. It's just it's probably cheaper for people through my website because uh, – the trickle down markup from Bandcamp. Of course, yep. well, we will link both. And any, I know you said live is not necessarily your main goal these days, but do you have any shows coming up? I'm playing in St. Louis in a few weeks, and that's about it. Yeah. What is, ho- what is up with that show? Tell us, give us any St. Louis listeners, what show can they expect to go see? I believe it's the 21st of November, CBGB's on Grand Avenue, uh, playing with a kind of drone trio there. I don't know all the bands, all the locals' names. And it, and this is as Panicsville? No, it's going to be solo. I'm probably just going to cool. say playing material off the new triple LP. That sounds good. And then any anything you're working on live coming up in, in the next few months or not really? Not live. Just really just a ton of recordings. I have like a lot of records. I owe labels. So I like, I wasn't doing a lot during COVID. So now I have to like, I've been saying yes a lot then, but now not <laughs> producing anything. So now I actually have to start catching up on all these records. But after that, Time. I think I'll probably book another European tour, maybe next year or something. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, Andy. Thank you so much. Thank we you. We'll talk soon. Hell yeah. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, guys. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at Noise Extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at Noise Extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.